Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey there, and welcome back to Life After Business Podcast. This is episode 98. If you got an out of the blue offer today, would you have any kind of context of whether you would accept it or not? Do you know how much you need? Do you know what you want? What kind of legacy you want to live? How that would impact your life now and in the future? Well, that's why I'm excited to have Arlen Sorensen on the podcast today. He's a legacy from my old industry, the managed IT services, and his wisdom throughout the podcast is amazing. He starts off by explaining to us how he went from farming into IT services, grew it up to about $4 million and was flat, went through some Y2K problems, and then ended up merging with another company, filling in a lot of gaps and building a platform that allowed him to do up to 10 acquisitions before he eventually ended up selling the company. And Arlen also has a company that he just sold called HTG, which is peer groups for managed IT providers. And regardless of the industry that you're in, Arlen and his sheer exposure to his experience and all the companies that he's worked with has developed a philosophy that is about planning and the four things that you need to know as a business owner to run your company like you're about to sell it tomorrow and you've got your non-negotiables and you've gotten a written legacy plan about the financial numbers and what you want for your from your business. What is your life plan? What are you going to be doing after you sell life after business? What is your leadership plan? How are you going to continue to develop yourself and other leaders? And then what is your business plan and how does that accomplish all the different things that you're trying to accomplish for your other plans? What I really liked about that is his core philosophy and core values really align with GEXP Collaborative and what we're doing. And it's just really fun to hear that the problems that they're dealing with are the problems that a lot of entrepreneurs have. So to really look at your company like it's a sellable asset and if you're getting knocks on the door from buyers, brokers, or investment bankers, whoever it might be, you have an idea of what's important to you so you can say yes or no immediately and then continue on your life to try and march towards the goals of what you have. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Arlen. Towards the end of the interview, he really gets going with all the different insights and the different things that owners have to be doing in order to be ready. So without further ado, here's my interview with Arlen. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Good morning, Arlen. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing really well, Ryan. Great to be with you. I'm looking forward to having you on the show. You are kind of a legend in the managed IT space with all the different uh, people that you bring together with the HTG peer groups that you've had and then also the background and a lot of the different experiences that you've had over the decades of being in the managed IT and technology world. So for the listeners that might not be too familiar with your background, can you go back to how you went from a farmer into technology? Because I think, you know, there's got to be a bridge there somewhere. Yeah, well, it uh, it, it certainly uh, wasn't a planned bridge, but there definitely is a bridge. Uh, I, I came back to the farm in 1977 uh, with the full intent of spending the rest of my life uh running the family farm operation with my brother. And uh, in 82, uh, I bought my first uh, first computer, an Apple II Plus, uh, 16K dual floppy drive machine, and uh, a piece of farm accounting software. Uh, I had I had seen uh, 
seeing some computers at some different industry, ag industry events and decided that, you know, I, I needed a machine to keep my accounting current with. So I spent $4,000 actually to buy that powerhouse. And, uh, but I, I got me, got me hooked on computers. And uh, over the course of the next few years, I started to help other farmers uh, go to Omaha, and, and uh, that was the closest place we could get a, get a computer, and I'd help them pick one out, bring it back, help set it up, and uh, teach them how to use the accounting system, and uh, after a couple of years of that, it became obvious to me that uh, either I had to stop doing that, or I had to charge something for my time, because I, I instantly became the the tech support guy too. <laughs> and, uh, they were calling me all the time to, to help them. And, and, uh, as, as that grew, I had to create a little sideline business to, uh, to get into the industry. And so in 85, that's, that's really when I set up official shop and, uh, started to sell farm accounting packages. And over the course of the next five years, moved into the, the business world. And, uh, from there we, we started a company that really focused on using technology to drive business outcomes for folks. So, and you, you've had uh, quite a couple of different milestones and steps throughout your, your, your journey as an entrepreneur. So with that business that you had started and then you had grown, what, can you kind of give us a little bit of the backdrop of it? You know, how did you guys go and what were some of the growth? Cause there was a couple other times in there that you ended up merging before you ended up eventually selling it. Correct. Correct. Uh, yeah, from '85 really through 2002, uh, it was an it was a business we ran here uh, actually from the farm. So over the course of of that time, I added on the end of my house five different times, and we've got 12,500 square feet of <laughs> office space attached to my house out here in the middle of a cornfield. But you know, we we got to Y2K and uh, we're doing pretty well. We, we staffed up because of the pending opportunity that was supposed to change the world. And, and uh, we had grown to 36 folks by that time. And, and Y2K came and, and uh, no business came with it. And all of a sudden, we were faced with uh, having about 10 people more than we had worked for. And uh, that, that, was, that was a really uh, challenging period of time. Uh, we had had pretty decent growth up till then. But uh, we kind of got stuck right right there, and um, we ended up having to let some folks go, and and uh, the business really kind of plateaued. Uh, we were doing about four million in revenue at that time, and uh, in 2002, after we'd had uh, four consecutive years of really flat uh, performance, uh, we decided to take a different approach and and uh, went down the M&A trail and over the next 10 years we uh, we did 10 different merger acquisitions uh, across the Midwest so when we actually sold the company at the end of 2012 we had uh, seven offices across five states and and 100 a little over 100 folks uh, in the organization so you know we 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 did the organic approach for the for the first uh, 20 years or so and then then we took the M&A approach for the last 10 and that was a very learning experience, to say the least. But uh, definitely, as I grow companies, uh, M and A is is something that I think is certainly got a place if you want to really uh, take your company to another level. Well, and and there's so much I want to impact there because I think you know 
10, <laughs> doing 10 acquisitions over 10 years, you're learning a lot. <laughs> so, you know, in, in the, you know, M and A is a growth strategy, I think is also a very interesting um, topic and I want to unfold as well, but maybe Arlen, can you explain how did you, how did you shift your mindset in that challenging time where you, you were flat? So because I think there, you know, right before the call, you and I were talking about the difference between a lifestyle business and then creating enterprise value. Did you have a shift in like, hey, you know, here's what's the ultimate goal and how am I going to get there? And then how did you land on M&A being part of the, the growth strategy? Well, uh, I wish I could say I had a grand plan for uh, for why we took that strategy. Uh, to be honest, it was driven mostly by my frustration in being able to continue to grow the company where where we were, uh, you know, we're we're out here in the, in the middle of of rural Iowa, and our our trade area at the time was was basically a couple hour radius from from Harlan, and and uh, most of the communities we served were, you know, three thousand to seventy five hundred people, so uh, we we had penetrated pretty deeply and. You know, I just came to the realization uh, that if we really wanted to grow any further, we were going to have to have a bigger geography. And we had tried uh, doing some remote offices and in smaller communities around the the region, and it was just tough to to go in there and and start from scratch and build something. So I, I knew people in the industry through some of the different community events and, and uh, industry events that I went to and got to talking to them. And, and there were some that were looking for uh, an exit strategy. And I certainly had no idea what I was really doing when we started down the path, but uh, we dove in head first and did a couple acquisitions the first year. And, um, you know, part, how did that look? Well, <laughs> As in, is like, did you just like chat with someone at a trade show? Because I think that happens a lot. I mean, was there certain synergies that you're looking for? But what sparked it with the first, the first acquisition? Yeah, the, the the first one was was actually a merger where uh, my my strength was really uh, around technical things and and um, you know some of the some of the operational stuff. Uh, I, I was I was dangerous. Uh, as far as financials and, and some of the back office uh, things. And um, I really was not very good at, at sales. And so uh, when we came together with Connecting Point and Joplin, uh, a big driver was that uh, two partners that came out of that were a, finance, a CFO and a vi- vice president of sales. And so it filled the two biggest weaknesses that, that we had in the company. And um, that was a very important uh, piece of us being able to, to scale from there. We finally put together a team that, that wasn't just technically focused and able to, to fix most any problem, but we actually could run the company profitably and had some controls. And, and then we had a, a sales engine for the first time that, that really had some focus and, and uh, we began to build, you know, the sales engine to uh, to allow us to continue to grow as we added in companies. Most most IT companies are not very strong on the sales side, and uh, that was certainly our case. So that first one was all about bringing together a, a team of people that we could build on and create a platform from. And then uh, the second one that year was a was a individual that was looking to to get out of the industry. He had some health problems, and and uh, 
So it was a perfect way to test our platform. And uh, we had plenty of bumps in the road, but it really went pretty smoothly. And, and we found that we could layer in a company and, and uh, you know, in fairly short order, bring them online and leverage our back office systems and, and move us forward. So that was, that was really the start of using a platform to, uh, to go to the next level. So, which I, I think is uh, extremely um, a huge point because whether it's a platform to can to do your own M and A or to give to someone else, there's going to be a huge amount of value that's created there. And before we before we dive into that, how you know when you when you have these different individuals and you you did that merger, Aaron, how did you guys like determine like, what is the operating agreement? Who has what shares? I mean, how did you guys divide up and value both of those companies? And then how did you like in the in your platform from the tech side did you have anything on the finance side to figure out how this is how we're going to do it well um you know from a from a valuation perspective um we we just agreed to use the same formula on both companies and and there wasn't a lot of really deep scientific things we we put in place we kept it simple we we looked at the balance sheets of both both had fairly good balance sheets and and uh, we put a formula in place to kind of value the company and then and then we did a we created a new a new corporation and rolled both of them in at the the uh, percentages that that the valuations indicated so uh, we made that pretty simple um, you know and and what what happened as we came together was that uh, Jane who's who's the, the financial genius uh, she came in and and we had known each other probably for three or four years ahead of this uh, off and on. So she had some idea of kind of the, let's say the creative ways that I would, would manage finances. And uh, you know, she pretty much came in and, and put a kibosh to uh, the things and got us, got us running the business the way it needed to be run. So we, we immediately moved over to, to their platform in terms of financials uh, using the great plains accounting system. Um, and put in her controls and discipline, and and that was that was huge. Uh, we brought to the table the the technical side and and uh, ConnectWise and the way that we were operating the service delivery side of the business and implemented that. And so it was it was a pretty immediate. We got holes in lots of different ways. We picked the best of breed solutions from the two companies and implemented them immediately, and and uh, that became our platform going forward. Which, which is awesome. And a couple um, questions on the financials. So what was some of the things <laughs> I like how you, you call it creative. So what are the, some of the things that she did on the financials to, to put it in some controls? Was there certain standards that she had uh, then layered on top of yours or what was some of the things that you guys did to make sure that you all had the same playbook? Yeah, I mean, from a, from a standards perspective, we, we didn't really have any. Uh, so she brought, she brought a lot of discipline, you know, the, the bill reviews and, and things, um, you know, paying bills for me was like, you know, Saturday night when I was had to get them out because they were due on Monday kind of thing. And I, I, I didn't review them carefully. I didn't have any kind of plan around doing that. And a lot of times invoicing would pile up and not get out because it, just wasn't high on my priority list. And so we got into a, you know, a very disciplined financial approach of, we had two people signing checks. So we had control over that. We had invoicing that went out, you know, every week and it was very structured and, and done the right way. Um, 
and, and so that that really served us well as we we grew and scaled uh we we implemented the majority of of the processes and, and procedures that, that uh, she had built in her own company and, and laid those across uh, what we were doing. And uh, Great Plains brought a lot of discipline that, that the early versions of QuickBooks didn't really have from a financial perspective. So, um, so it, was, it was just a, it was the right thing at the right time to help us really build a, a solid financial footing. And then you know, when we had our, our weekly meetings, we actually looked at numbers. We had a budget. I mean, there were, there were things that uh, I had just kind of, there, if there was money in the account, we were doing okay kind of thing. And, and that, all, that all changed to, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? What's our balance sheet look like? Uh, you know, what's the cash flow projections look like? What's the pipeline look like? All, all things that were pretty foreign to me at the time. Uh, I was running it by the seat of my pants and and just making it happen and and so that's where we're that's when uh, we got a little more mature. Well, I, and I think you know it, there's a lot of people that do that and you know it, and filling the talent gaps is a, is a really big challenge and so it's being able to get the talent together and then actually build this platform. So in your mind and what's your definition of a platform and then how did you guys use that? and change your strategy going forward? Well, platform to me is really the, the assembly of best of breed uh, products and tools that are configured with a, with a team of people around those things that can execute them consistently with discipline over time. And then a, 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 you know, a, a team of leaders that, that can guide the strategy and, and execution of, of that platform uh, to scale a business. Um, and so, you know, we, we brought together those things and we built that and, and it, it became really our, our way of, of building value in the company um, because we used the platform then to, to do acquisitions. And uh, we did one other merger along the journey where we brought in a, a, a COO because that was kind of a, a weak spot we discovered over time that we just didn't have enough uh, leadership in terms of managing operations. And so uh, we brought, brought one more key leader into the mix through an acquisition. But um, most, of what, most of what we did was buying companies that had established customer bases and plug those into our back office and, and our platform of, of delivery. And, uh, and then migrated them quickly to that platform so that we could leverage the cost savings and, and the efficiencies by having everybody on the same thing. So what were some of the KPIs? Cause you, you mentioned the uh, creating and growing company value, which I want to, you know, really dive into And what were the KPIs on that you were like, that you were measuring to make sure that you were judging on how well you were doing. Was it, you know, evaluation formula and then whether layers of KPIs from customers to profitability to what were some of the things that you were measuring and then how did you use that to then roll in these other, um, other companies? Yeah. So we, we, we measured a lot of things. Um, the, the, one of the beauties of, of having a, a financial uh, genius like we did was that, she was able to create a, a uh, dashboard for us, pulling data from, from the accounting system, from ConnectWise, from uh, some of the other tools we had in place. And, and 
provide us real-time daily uh, information on what was going on in the operation. And, and that, that became a, a huge uh, and important piece for me trying to run the company. Uh, I, I knew what was going on for the first time, you know, in my career, actually. Uh, a lot of times in the past, it was, you know, gut feel because I didn't have data. But uh, Jane, mm-hmm. Jane brought it all together into a, a dashboard that, that was in my inbox every morning. And uh, it told us, you know, my, my number one concern was cash flow. We were rapidly growing. We were hiring people. We were doing all kinds of stuff. And, and uh, cash is cash is king and, and it causes a lot of companies to, to have real challenges. So uh, that was, that was the number one thing I watched uh, every day, you know, valuation, there's all kinds of formulas. There's all kinds of ideas of what companies are worth. At the end of the day, people buy companies that have got consistent profit. And so um, we monitored carefully uh, EBITDA, you know, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, amortization, because that's really what most companies in, in this industry are, are bought off of. And so we wanted to watch that and make sure that we were consistently driving a profit. To do that, of course, we got we to gotta watch our service delivery efficiency. So we, we, we monitored a uh, KPI called the W2 multiple. That is uh, something that service leadership taught us, which is about... It's basically how many dollars of service revenue are being generated per dollar of W2 expense. And so you, you want to have a number that's, that's around three times. So if you're, if you're paying a, a service delivery engineer, say $50,000, you need them to be generating $150,000 in service revenue to really be able to cover costs, cover benefits, and uh, have some money left at the end of the day. And so we, we monitored that very carefully, and we set our comp pro- program up to, to align to that. And we, we comped engineers more if they, if they drove higher uh, W-2 multiples. But that, that was a key part. We had 30, 36 engineers on the road at our peak. And, and uh, so they were a huge part of, of our ability to, uh, to drive profitability. Uh, gross margin was another one. Uh, we were a, a large product reseller. So we monitored gross margin carefully to make sure that, you know, we weren't selling product too cheaply and, and uh, that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, there was a number of things on the dashboard, but those were some of the key ones that, that I paid really close attention to. Well, and I think you, you hit on a lot of good things. And I think what's really interesting is when you have high level numbers that you're watching, there's a lot of decisions that layer in and make it easier to, to develop things around there where, you know, if you've got, EBITDA that you're always looking at and you're trying to drive it because, you know, you mentioned consistent profitability and that's easier to transfer the profit to any additional future buyer, whether it's internal, external, all that stuff. And, you know, then if you have the the W2 ratio models, you're going to be driving efficiency. So, you know, I I think, you know, what's really interesting about the managed IT services industry that a lot of different industries also struggle with, you know, you're going from trading dollars for hours to having a a machine and a system. Did you guys start out at BreakFix and then, you know, merge into the managed IT and scripting and all these other things? And, or, or did you start there? And I think, how did, you know, certain service delivery things that you were doing, 
you know, were there ideas that you had came up with and how you looked at that stuff because of those ratios? You were looking at? Yeah, for sure. We, uh, you know, we, we started back in the eighties, so we definitely didn't start with many services. We were a break fix shop that, that went through the, the different transitions to, uh, you know, doing some proactive services where we would actually try to call customers and go out and, and, uh, proactively look at their stuff and, and uh, deal with that to then selling block time to people where they could prepay for a block of hours and get a discount to, uh, you know, to the point where we finally began to, uh, to do some uh, managed IT services where, where it was all about, you know, a fee for in exchange for keeping a, uh, an environment functional. And, uh, you know, that, that happened over a number of years, but it, it's, it's a model that, that allows you to scale. And uh, it's, it's difficult to, uh, to manage that, uh, especially getting it started. But um, once you get it in place and you have the right systems on the back end and you can automate a lot of things, uh, that's when you're able to actually kind of take advantage of the platform and, and uh, use it to drive uh, revenue and profitability. So what were some of the things that you, you know, what was difficult about some of those? You said it's difficult to manage. What's difficult to manage about it? Well, one of the first challenges is that we had spent uh, decades teaching our customers that, that they only needed to, to pay money if there was a big problem. And, uh, you know, with, with managed IT, the, the idea is it's somewhat like insurance. You pay, you pay no matter what's going on and uh, you're paying for the, reality that your systems are just going to work and and so we had to kind of untrain all of our our clients and and teach them a a new way of thinking where it was uh not the pay-as-you-go kind of thing but you pay monthly and and uh you know it's better for you that way and that that was a tough transition but you know the the other thing that that is really difficult in the transition is for years we had been we had been rewarding engineers for hours worked and build. And when you go to a managed IT environment, you win when you're not putting hours on the customer uh, account, basically, because you've done a good job and you're using automation and tools to help keep the systems running. So you reward engineers for not working on, on machines because they've done a great job of keeping them healthy and, and uh, working along the way. And so it, it's a complete mind shift. We had to redo our, our entire comp plan uh, model. And, um, you know, anytime there's a change like that, it's, it's difficult to educate and, and uh, get everybody on board. Well, and, and were those KPIs that you were mentioning, those were helping you determine that it was worth the effort, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there, there's no question that as, as you go through these different gyrations in, in any industry as it matures is that the profitability, you know, starts strong and then it starts to wane and, and fall off and you've got to jump curves and, and go to another, another business model. So, so we've been through a, you know, a handful of those to say the least. And, each time that you, you watched your profitability fall off it before you jumped to the, to the next thing and then had to build up, you know, the, the operational efficiencies and, and uh, back in to make those things profitable again. 
So in, I think, you know, that's a lot of industries and a lot of companies have to go through those gyrations, like you mentioned, but did you guys have a foot because of the, the M&A that you were doing, you were starting this, I mean, you had very, you know, real life experience of how things were valued because you're the buyer, right? I mean, you're, you're managing risk and then looking at your way of how the bigger enterprise works. You know, when you have those gyrations in the profitability, knowing that you get the, 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 the foresight on enterprise value. How did you see these, these things that you were implementing change the overall efficiencies of your company, but also the valuation of the business? Cause I, you know, I think the, it's like a foot in the, this year's cash flow, but then also a foot in the enterprise value. It's a constant balance. Yeah, it's definitely a balancing act. And, and obviously cash flow is a, is a big, driver and and how much of that you can do you know what we what we saw over time was that that we were able to we got better at basically acquiring employees and customers from an organization and and plugging those into our system so you know in the early days we didn't really know what we were doing around employee onboarding employee training and and all the things that we needed to, to bring the people that we acquired up to speed quickly so they could contribute and uh, didn't feel lost for the first six months that they worked for us because we, we weren't doing a very good job of, of bringing them on board. Uh, we had the same, same issue with customers. Um, you know, we often were transitioning uh, their, their world from what they were accustomed to, to, to our platform and, and service delivery model. And, and uh, in a lot of cases that was coming, coming off a block time or a break fix kind of relationships into a, a monthly uh, recurring model. And, and uh, it took a lot of education, a lot of uh, sales calls and, and things like that to, to educate and bring them up to speed so they could plug into the system. You know, we, we struggled far more retaining employees when we did acquisitions than we did customers. Customers were pretty willing to, to stick and ride through the, the changes. Uh, employees were, were uh, uh, much more of a challenge for us uh, because we, we were shifting mindset and what they were accustomed to doing. We were giving them a whole new set of tools to work with, you know, and for the first time in a lot of cases, they, they were smaller companies, so they were getting reviews and, and things they weren't accustomed to. And, and <laughs> we we're measuring them, you know, uh, in ways that they weren't used to. And, and so, uh, you know, we lost, we lost some folks as we did acquisitions just be, due to the changes that were part of what was going to happen. So, you know, I think you, you, when you're looking at these companies and the, the 10 acquisitions that you did, and then we can kind of migrate into the overall things that you're seeing in the marketplace, but like, how did you, you know, what were some of the things that you were seeing them, you know, cause you've built this platform, which is all the things to do right. Right. And then you would look at these people of all the things that they're not doing. Right. So, you know, if you take, you know, I don't know if you've got maybe some hypothetical numbers of, okay, if you take a $2 million company with, you know, 400 grand, EBITDA, and you, you know, how did you value that? And then when you brought that profit stream into your machine, did the value change? Cause you're almost getting a, a direct return on your investment as you're plugging it in. I mean, it, right. I mean, is that kind of the whole, whole approach that you guys were looking at? Well, uh, yeah, but it's, it's not, it's not immediate. Uh, and that's probably the biggest thing <laughs> that, that people uh, get wrong in my opinion about M and a, uh, there's a lot of folks that think one plus one is going to equal three. 
And uh, my experience is that the first year, one plus one is more like 1.6 to 1.8. It's not even two. Uh, You you take a dip before you're able to uh, make the changes that are necessary to then begin to capitalize on what your your acquisition is. So um, that's a... That's a fallacy that I see a whole lot of people walk into, especially on their first M&A, and they think that they've just struck gold, and they find out that uh, the money's flowing the wrong way. Uh, (laughs) And that's just part of what happens uh, in an acquisition situation. But, you know, um, valuation is based on a whole lot of factors, and and, uh, a lot of times it depends on, uh, you know, the situation that that the ownership is in and what they're trying to accomplish and how they want to get paid. And, you know, my perspective is the number is not nearly as important as the structure of the deal. Um, I I see some high-dollar offers out there that have got terms that, uh, are not very favorable for the seller. Um, and over time, they often end up with less money than a much lower offer they could have gotten for cash up front. So uh, we tried to focus on on kind of the structure of the deal with, with those that we acquired to help the owner achieve what they, were, what they wanted to accomplish. Um, in some cases, they had debt they needed to get rid of. You know, in other cases, they were looking for more long-term employment. And so their employment agreement was was a driver. In some cases, um, you know, they were looking for income that was was stretched out over time, that helped them manage some of the tax implications of a sale. So uh, we we focused a lot on structure of the deal and uh, tried to make that uh, part of the attractiveness to to the seller, and uh, that allowed us then to to figure out how to to really uh, maximize. Uh, the business value uh, creation on our side and uh, and then drive efficiencies into the the customers that we acquired and and uh, turn them into profit as soon as we could well i think you, you hit on a huge thing i mean the deal structure is the thing that I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs see this oh gotcha after the fact right <laughs> you know it's like hey i'll put like i could pay you 20 million dollars for your company but it's going to take me you know, 25 years. <laughs> and so, you know, and there's going to be all these, you know, drivers that essentially you've got a glorified sales position versus exactly. your company. And, you know, because of maybe, you know, we can kind of shift to, into the HTG as you guys, you know, maybe what did you, how did you guys, what was the final decision that you had to eventually sell the business? And then what were some of the things that you learned throughout that? And why did you end up, you know, migrating over to HTG? Well, um, you know, HDG started in, in 2000. It, it grew out of the struggles we were having as a company uh, with Y2K. And uh, one of my employees actually said, you know, we ought we to call some other Iowa companies and just see if if they're having the same problem with Y2K as we are and you know, or if we're just too stupid to see where the opportunities are. And, and so that's what we did. Uh, in April of 2000, we called three other Iowa uh, companies and, and uh, asked if they'd meet us in Des Moines for, for a half a day to, to share notes on what was going on with Y2K. And, and they all showed up and we actually spent the whole day together because we got, we got so much value out of just talking to each other about business. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that grew over time. Um, you know, and, and when I finally decided to exit HTS in, 
in 20, at the end of 2012, uh, which was the IT company, um, I had really lost my passion for the business, uh, quite honestly, uh, and was having a lot more fun working with HTG, which had grown significantly. Um, and the other thing was that the cloud, the cloud transition was, was right there. And I really wasn't looking, looking to do another major business modification and shift. Um, so we, uh, we hadn't really had a plan to sell the company. I got a call out of the blue and followed up with the broker, and uh, it, it appeared to be real. Uh, one of the best things that, that I've used uh, in, in selling the two companies I have is I had a predetermined uh, list of things that were non-negotiable. Um, if I was going some of them if I was going to sell the company there I had a list of things that had to be true um, and in the cage of HTS you know some of them were you, they couldn't go in and close down the rural locations that we were serving because uh, our our model was we were we were serving you know smaller locations around uh, larger metro areas but we wanted to take care of of the smaller the smaller uh, businesses. Um, and so that was something and they had to, they had to take care of our employees. Um, we weren't going to allow somebody to come in buy the customer list and fire our team. Um, so, so we had, we had this list of things that were, were a requirement and, uh, in order for us to really even have a conversation. And of course, you know, as, as most business owners, we get, we got lots of phone calls from people that wanted to buy our business or thought they did. And, and my immediate response was, hey, I'll send you our list of non-negotiables. And if, if you're good with it, give me a call. Uh, you know, I never got any callbacks uh, until, <laughs> until October uh, of, uh, of 2012. And uh, this company said, okay, uh, you know what? We'll, we'll do this. We're, we're from a small rural area ourselves. And, uh, you know, in three months, we sold the company and, and uh, moved on. Well, and I think so there's a couple of things that you mentioned. So you, you said that you didn't really have any plan to selling, but yet you had these predetermined. So, you know, was there over the course of these 10 acquisitions, I mean, did that help you formulate those non-negotiables because you watched the situations? So even though you weren't ready per se, you had, you had something and in, in in an idea and a plan for should you be ready? Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the things that, that Jane, our CFO, was, was really uh, stuck on is we had to run the business every day like we were going to sell it. And um, so, you know, we, we talked about what would cause us to sell uh, on a regular basis. And, and we ran the business financially, um, you know, not not messing around with the numbers and trying to make them look any which way or other it was the numbers need to be the way the numbers are and we need to run it like we would sell it tomorrow and and that served us really really well uh kept discipline in what we were doing and and uh you know i, I as i consult with a, with a lot of companies there, a lot of a lot of things get get uh messed around with financially where where owners will take money for this, that, or the other thing. And, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a privilege and a right of, of owning and running a business. But, uh, when, when you get to the point of sale, um, we didn't really have any ad backs or deducts from our, from our numbers because we ran it clean. And, uh, so there, you know, it, it made well, the transaction go pretty smoothly. 
Well, you ran it clean, and I'm assuming because you've done it 10 times by that point, and you've also been, you know, in the HCG talking to other business owners, you had probably, whether it was written down or not, did you have, you, you know, the answers to the questions that you knew were going to come? Sure, sure. We had done a lot of due diligence and we knew we knew what the due diligence process would look like. And, and uh, you know, the, the company that purchased us, uh, they brought six folks into my office for a week and set up <laughs> and, uh, you know, they looked at they looked at everything uh, very carefully, but they they found everything because uh, because we had run the company in a way that kept it uh, ready for that kind of inspection. And so clean these things up and we got to shred this stuff and we got to hide this and whatever it was sure here's the files you know go to it and uh and so there's a lot that can be done just by running a, a business in a disciplined way so that you're prepared whenever that time comes so and i know you guys do a lot of uh education and preaching of that in htg so you know when we when we kind of shift the conversation i'm curious because of the sheer exposure that you have to the managed it services industry and there's like you and i were saying before that we got on the air is that it's a it's an epidemic all across a lot of different industries you know what are the things that you're seeing that people aren't doing consistently that they should be in order to kind of have their eyes wide open well, Ryan, I think the biggest the biggest thing that that we see that people are not doing is number one to to have a plan for what they want to accomplish financially. That that starts with what they need personally to have available when they're going to quit getting a paycheck and they need to live on whatever they've accumulated. So we call that a personal wealth target. People need to know how much money they need to accumulate so they can live the rest of their life. And, you know, the, the best advice we've been able to find from financial planners that we've talked to is that uh, you, need to, you need to know how you're going to come up with basically 25 to 40 times whatever you live on today. So if you spend uh, $100,000 a year to live today, you need to have $2.5 million of assets that you know you can, you can uh, leverage to live out your your uh, time after you quit getting a paycheck. Most people have no concept of how much it costs to live and have no plan for how they're going to accumulate that beyond social security, if there is any, and maybe a little bit of retirement funds. But when you look at the data for the United States, something over 55% of people can't handle a $5,000 unexpected bill. And those folks are all going to retire someday. And uh, so that's the first thing we see is, you know, what's the personal need you have? And then as a business owner, that has to tie into how much business value do you need to create to make sure that you fund that personal uh, gap? Because that's what most business owners think is going to happen. They're going to sell their company. They're going to have all the money they need from selling the company to take care of their personal needs. And I can tell you, from watching dozens and dozens of sales over the last few years that that often does not happen. People try to equate hard work as value. And I can tell you, buyers don't buy hard work. They don't care if you worked 80 hours a week for 25 years in your company. They're going to buy it based on what that company is able to generate into the future. And 
it's not hard work. So well, it's interesting, Arlen, right? because like you know, going back to the <laughs> it, like work smarter, not harder, right? And yep. then you know, in those numbers, you know, if I had a dollar for every time I saw someone's face kind of look weird when you say, okay, so if, if your company is five million dollars in revenue, maybe a million or so in EBITDA. And maybe it's worth five times. So you got $5 million. And by the way, you pay 45% in taxes. And then the rest is going to come over time. And then you're not going to have a company credit card to run through your trips and your cars. Yep. And next, oh, you've got like, holy shit, what do I have left? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly true. And, and uh, you know, so uh, people have got to, they've got to do the math, right? And, and that's, that's probably the biggest mistake I see that happens out there is that they're uninformed about the reality of, of the numbers. And uh, we're spending a lot of time with owners just doing simple spreadsheets where we ask a few questions and plug in the numbers and we, we watch their faces just like you said and their jaws drop wide open. And, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you look at companies that are marginally profitable and they need to generate significant amount of, of EBITDA to be able to sell the company to meet a target. And, you know, I've seen numbers where, you know, companies are doing $3 million in revenue today at, at very low, very low profitability, but, but they want to, they want to end up with a business that's going to give them $10 million. Let's say. <laughs> you know, they, they've got to grow from 3 million to like 50 million you need three million in EBITDA <laughs> to get to the EBITDA number that they need to get to the profit number or to the the sale number, and and it's it's just like it's not computed. They're not connected in their mind that that this stuff all really really matters. And uh, everybody thinks that well, you know, we can fix it tomorrow. And and I can tell you that it takes it's not a tomorrow fix. It it takes years to fix things and get them to a place where it's going to achieve what the end game is. So people have which got is, to get their numbers figured out. Well, what's, what's interesting too, and I think, you know, I think you guys are doing justice to it because if you, if you think about your, you know, coming from the managed IT services space and all of a sudden, you know, you gamify being a tech and a service delivery, you know, you got the connect wise, you got the dashboards yep. and ratios. And if you think about it, and this is my perspective of going through it too, is you got being an entrepreneur, you can gamify it being so, okay, if you want 5 million net, how much do you need to grow the value of the company to? And then all of those KPIs that you had mentioned should tie to the enterprise value and, and your net proceeds. Yep. You have very specific things that you're marching towards all day long because you've got a reason to do it instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to go buy a new boat or cabin. Yeah, absolutely. It's all tied together. And and uh, the the big challenge that we see is that people are not, thinking like business owners in, in this particular area. And, and um, they got They got to make a shift. They got to, they got to invest the time to learn their own financials and learn how the market really works so that they can uh, not get to a place. I mean, one of the saddest conversations I've had in the, in the recent uh, few years has been with a guy in South Carolina that called me and said, I'm selling my business. I've had four different offers. They're taking advantage of me. Can you look at my numbers and tell me what's fair? And uh, I, I looked at his numbers and I said, you know what? These offers are not out of line. 
they're, they're paying you what this company's really worth. And he said, you don't understand. I have missed every basketball game, every anniversary, every birthday. I, I traded my life for this company for 27 years. I can't sell it for this. My wife will kill me. I said, man, I, I don't know what to tell you other than you should have worried about this a long time ago. And he ended up selling his company for about 10% of what he had promised his wife he was going to get for it and had to go get a job. Uh, he couldn't afford to retire. And, and so, uh, I, that, you know, those kind of stories are all too happening all too often. Well, and I, I've seen it myself <laughs> and with the people that I've talked to or the, you know, our clients or the interviews and what I have, and I'm curious on your, what you've seen is once someone has that experience, the eye opening, okay, I've got a target, I got to hit. How have you seen their, their strategy and their focus shift? Because they've got a specific thing that they're trying to do. So going back to, you know, kind of the context of my question is, you know, the hard things that you have to do from changing business models or replacing the people that aren't working out. Have you seen it where people make those determinations faster, quicker, easier because they've got a reason to do it? I mean, how do what's the correlation there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we press our, our members to write a plan, number one. So they, they've got to put it on paper, which is, is a big part of the process. If you write it down, that will help. And then, and then you've got to look at the different levers you have available to pull to really help you accomplish that plan. So, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it is looking at key metrics and, and understanding which ones will move the needle the quickest to help you get to where you want to go and what, what do you need to do to make that happen. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's, it's just drive up the way they run their company. And, and, uh, you know, if, if you're running a company that's, that's running at, at 5% profitability and you needed to get it to 10%, you know, the first discipline you have to have is every time you make a decision, you've got to ask yourself, is this a 10% decision? And you have to realize that if it's not, then you better have another one that's a 15% decision that's going to offset the one you just made for 5%. And, and we, we have to just train our minds to think profit first. So many small business owners feel guilty making a profit. And they don't recognize that it's, it's their future that they're, they're gambling away when they choose to, do, to make poor decisions on profitability. So it starts with writing a plan, putting it on paper, you know, sharing it with people around you that can help hold you accountable and can, can help ask that kind of question. That's one of the values of a peer group is when, when we know that you're trying to accomplish X, we can ask you why you made a decision that didn't move you toward that. And uh, all of us need that kind of accountability to keep us on track. So, and I think peer groups, no matter what industry or wherever you go, you have to, especially as an entrepreneur owning a company, because you can't, you got to have someone that's going to actually hit you between the eyes yep. <laughs> and not someone that's going to say yes, because you pay their paycheck. Right. <laughs> but I'm curious, Aaron, you know, when you say how, how do you guys, or how have you seen it, the, the balance between, you know, you said looking at profit and I think there's these decisions that that's why I kind of went back from the, the foot in the annual cash flow bucket versus the foot in the enterprise. So if you have to invest, so, you know, I've seen a lot of people cheat, uh, you know, cheat on investing of like, you know, the, the new, a CFO, I'm going to hire the $80,000 person instead of the $120,000 person, you know, because it's yep. in fact profitability or my lifestyle. How do you guys 
or how have you seen people balance that in a way that's actually effective or certain cases? Well, I, you know, there's no question that, that lifestyle drives a lot of the decisions. Um, but the, the, to me, the key is planning, right? And, and, you know, we drive, we drive people to have four plans that, that they need to have written down and updated every year and shared with their peer groups. They got to have a legacy plan which tells us what's the end game they're trying to accomplish. And, and a big part of that is the financial goals that, that you need to have set in stone so you know what you're tracing. They got to have a life plan. How are they going to live the hours they're not in the workplace and make it meaningful? They got to have a leadership plan, which is how am I going to invest in myself as a leader? How am I going to invest in the key people around me that I need to help me succeed and achieve what I want? from my legacy and then they need a business plan which drives how they're going to operate and run their business to drive toward the legacy they want to have and and if you get into the discipline of building those kind of plans and really you know writing them down and having specifics you know having a budget that means something that you manage against it quickly becomes obvious when you've got shortfalls in in talent or, or other things around you that you need to have to achieve those goals and you can make better decisions. And, and so I, I'm a big believer that the, the main value of planning is it gives you a reason to say no to things. Um, entrepreneurs seldom say no to anything if it looks interesting. And uh, <laughs> often they need to say no to most things. So um, if you have a, a disciplined planning process, it gives you you know, the guidelines basically to say no. If it's not in the plan, the answer's got to be no, not right now. And if it's really important, then you have to adjust the plan and put it in there. But um, most people don't, don't follow that mindset, and, and thus they'll make poor choices in how they spend the, the money they have and, and uh, come up short in key areas. I, I mean... I couldn't echo what you just said any better. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, I, I, the, there's an analogy I give in uh, a speech that I do where, you know, if you think about Google Maps, it's like one of the most powerful tools on the planet. And if you don't plug in your point B, what happens? Yeah. Not, not, <laughs> nothing. <literally> nothing. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. You know, like, let's go to a quick trip across the country. Well, you know, that wasn't on my way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yep. it's super simple, but it, it, I think it hits home. You know, I, I, you've got a ton of uh, gold nuggets that you've given us. You know, if there was one thing Aaron, that you would like to highlight um, or the things that we've talked about or one thing that you want to leave our, our listeners with, what would it be? Uh, you know, a lot of people sometimes feel like they, they, can't, they can't do it. Uh, it it's, it's an impossible goal. And, and I would tell you from watching lots and lots of people, um, planning will get you – where you want to go if you uh, plan your work and you work your plan your plan will work you got to make sure there's enough time in that in that equation but planning is the key to not just making uh, you know the amount of money that you need to personally succeed or driving the, the enterprise value of your your business planning is how you succeed in life as well and um, it's the willingness to be disciplined, to stop and think about what it is you really want to accomplish. It all is built on that legacy plan and, and where you're trying to end up. 
but you can work backward and figure out what needs to happen this year to move me there. And if you take that time and you are willing to, to really let planning work for you, you can accomplish whatever you want to achieve. I mean, wow. Well said. And I, you know, I think with a plan, you, your ability to say no too. And I, I just, I was just thinking as you were saying that too, and how, you know, these people are getting random offers and they don't know whether they should say no to that or not because they don't know what kind of context to put it in. Exactly. And that's, that's where the non-negotiable thing was, is so important. You know, if you've got a number that you're looking for, if you've got the kind of the contract uh, requirements that you're looking for, if you know what it is you want, saying no is pretty easy. Right. Uh, what's the, what's the best way to Get in touch with you if our listeners want to know more. Um, they can connect with me by email. Uh, it's it's a Sorensen a s o r e n s e n at s c c i dot com, or I'm on LinkedIn. Then uh, they can connect with me there or on Twitter. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast. Me too. Appreciate the time, Ryan. Thanks for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Arlen. I can't tell you how much I think that what he was saying towards the end needs to hit home. You need to soak it in because planning is hard work, but then executing a plan is even 10 times more difficult. And I think we as entrepreneurs, we're we're very driven based on things that we want to accomplish. So we have to spend the time to crystallize what we want. So whether it's the four things that Arlen mentioned, or if you go on the GEXP website, there's the five different things that you need to be marching towards. You have to understand why you're making the decisions because it's hard work to create value in a business. It's hard work to build a machine that kicks out cash. And if you know why you're doing that to accomplish your legacy, to accomplish the profitability, to accomplish the ability to transfer that company to someone at some point, you're putting yourself back into control and back into the driver's seat, which is where you want to be as an owner. Because if you're not doing that, you're just at the complete mercy of the industry, of things that happen because you don't know what your non-negotiables are because because you don't have a plan and you can't put it into context. So if there's anything that you took away from this interview is sit down and just think about it. Think about what's important to you. Is it cash flow? Is it legacy? Is it employees? Is it uh, freedom and time? Whatever it is, start writing those down and then start saying no to everything else because you have to march towards that. And it's not going to just happen by accident because it's intentional work to do all this stuff. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Arlen. If there's anything that you need, there's a GEXP's website, gexpcollaborative.com has tons of podcasts, white papers, surveys, all about these topics. And we're going to continue launching more ultimate guides that have extremely detailed, meaty information of valuations, targets, value driving, exit options, and how to hire a team. So they're going to be slowly coming out. We're working really hard on it. So if there's anything else, go on iTunes, give us a rating, share this podcast with anybody else that you know and needs it. And I will see you next week.